You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Grace. Today we're going to be talking about the story of John Chocha Jr., um, who went missing from the Harrisburg State Hospital in 1969. <clears throat> so as I started researching this case, it appeared that every website had the same paragraph and list of information, and it was mostly just like blurbs on charlieproject.com and NamUs, etc. But <clears throat> I stumbled across a web sleuth thread dominated by someone claiming to be John's grandson. And what he claims happened to his grandfather is a wild ride. So we're going to dive into that as well. And I want to be clear that I never saw any of these details in an official news source. But then again, how could I if what he's saying is true? So just when I get to that part, just take everything with a grain of salt. So here we go. John Chocha Jr. was confined to Harrisburg State Hospital due to a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. I'm not sure exactly when he was committed to the hospital, since medical records are never considered public, even after death, and it was from a while ago, so it's it's real hard to find that stuff. But, I mean, it's even hard to get simple patient lists. But he was married, so I'm guessing he was probably out in the world for at least part of his adult life. An interesting note about this is that I found um, in a small bit of information out there um, let me back up on that. An interesting note about this is that I found this diagnosis and a small bit of information out there, and it's always followed with, but had privileges to visit town, like alone. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I don't, I mean, that's one of those diagnoses that I wouldn't want to have people just wandering with. Yeah. And even on this um, web sleuth thread with his grandson, his grandson's like, what the hell? Because I mean, yeah. even in 69, I have to assume they realized how risky it could be. I mean, he was institutionalized for a reason. So yeah, that's weird. And it's in everything. And um, just, strange. I mean, I only have anxiety and depression and I still don't take advantage of privileges to visit towns but mainly I just don't like humanity so maybe it's maybe it's a little different there probably <laughs> but if you consider his grandson's beliefs which we're about to dive into this just kind of seems like it might be a convenient excuse to rid the hospital of most of the liability of losing him so mm, that's true yeah the story goes that John's sister was the last family member to spend time with him. She came to visit him at the hospital in either May or June of that year. And a few weeks later, John's wife called to say that she was planning a visit. But the staff told her that John was nowhere to be found. And that is all I can find. Uh, but you... I Like, okay, so I know you didn't want us to comment on this because you would get raw reactions, but, like, I don't actually have words. I just have noises. Yeah, that's pretty much how do you, me when I, I first read it. How do you lose a patient? So 
I don't know if they had known he was missing and didn't notify the family. That's kind of what it seems like. Or or even if they were just now noticing, like, hey, the phone's for John. Let's go find him. But John's not anywhere. Like, both of those are awful. Um <sighs> And I do know that state hospitals were struggling with overcrowding and lack of funding at the time. And plus, there was a new superintendent and many changes were taking place. So I just sort of imagine like a scene of chaos. Um, But Sarah actually has done much more extensive research on the hospital. So she'll be sharing that with us in a special episode at some point during spooky season. Yay, spooky season. I just... (laughs) know the bare minimum, but I imagine it was a little crazy at that time. So one thing that I don't know yet, but I have managed to find a couple connections. And now that we're talking about this, this is something I'll ask them. Um, Some people that I know used to work in the, the hospital. I wonder what record keeping looked like in a hospital, in a psych hospital in what was this late 60s we said mm-hmm. 1969 yep so i wonder what record keeping looked like i mean now everything is automated and so you know you know that someone is checking on you because they have to swipe their badge in your room to get medications out or you know but obviously there wasn't an automated system i wonder if they had to do checks on these patients and document it like i'm just I mean, they have, they have to check on the Alzheimer's patients. Like, didn't you see the notebook? Right. Pretty sure that wasn't in 69, though. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> but, but, but still, I would think, I mean, the hospital, now we all know that the psych hospitals were not always the most well-managed and they were insanely overcrowded and we could go on that rant for a long time, but I still feel like there had to be some sort of record keeping and like notating that you checked on this patient. So I don't, I'll have to, as I continue digging in, I'll have to talk to some of the people I know that worked there. So from somebody who worked on an ambulance and would go into a nursing home and everyone who's ever worked on an ambulance knows exactly what I'm talking about. When you walk in there for a patient that they called 911 for, the staff is always like, She's not my patient. He's not my patient. I don't know what their normal mental status is. I don't know anything about them. So, and that's today when you should know everything about them. Right. So I would imagine that, like, I can picture this being the same situation. Yeah. And I mean, there could be, um, like, forms they had to fill out or whatever, like, checklists for checking in on them, but it's just paper. So I guess it's, like, way harder to track and way harder to just, like, or easier to just kind of fudge it and maybe check off something that you checked on him but did you really right that's a simpler time in life yeah so anyway either way john was missing there is so little information out there i could find absolutely no news articles about his disappearance like not even a little blurb on a back page. I know we go on newspapers.com a lot for all those archives and I could just find absolutely nothing. Um, So there wasn't even anything really out there that I could find that was like, Hey, keep an eye out for this patient. Um, But you know, also maybe they were trying to cover it up. Like we don't want people to know that we lost someone. So there's that too. True. Was he dangerous? I mean, he had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, which I imagine could 
like manifest itself in violence maybe, but there was, I I just couldn't find anything specific. Okay. And it's not like he's going to be like, Hey, I'm going to run away. Let me take my meds with me. So I mean, at that point, I guess he would be. And oh my God, if he had violent tendencies and had, um, the okay to visit town sometimes, like, yeah. Why does this institution even exist? (laughs) What's the point? It doesn't anymore. Not well, protecting yeah, anyone. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, the only thing we know is that there's been no activity on his social security number since his disappearance, and he was legally declared dead seven years after he went missing. Missing.org reports that Chocho was last confirmed seen on July 19th, 1969 at 11.06 a.m. I feel like that's so specific. And it... I never saw any record of who saw him. I'm guessing it was some sort of employee at the hospital, but I don't know. Okay, so if you're ready, here we dive into the rabbit hole of what I fell into on Web Sleuths. (laughs) (laughs) And again, this isn't backed up by anything substantial, but it doesn't mean that it can't be true. So Chris Ward Klein claims to be John's grandson. He has launched a campaign across social media, including a petition on change.org, to have the, quote, John Chocha files released. Chris believes that his grandfather is buried on the Carlisle military base in an unmarked grave. Why would he be buried in an unmarked grave, and why weren't any family members notified that he was found? Because, allegedly, he was never actually missing in the first place. Chris believes that his grandfather was subjected to the experiments that were being performed by the CIA during the time that John would have been confined in the hospital. But let me back up just a little bit before I get into all that. Chris believes that John was incorrectly diagnosed with schizophrenia and that he was actually suffering from PTSD, which was not a recognized disorder at this time. It was added to the DSM-3 in um, 1980. So along with the incorrect diagnosis came the incorrect medications, which could have further negatively impacted John's mental health state. The basis of Chris's campaign is mental health reform, which whether you believe what he's saying about his grandfather or not, I can totally get behind. He's essentially looking for more transparency when it comes to mental health care. Do we know much about John's life? before this and maybe you're getting into it as you talk more about his grandson but i mean do we know anything that would that had occurred in his life that we could associate the ptsd with is it just a theory because back then they would have shown similar traits or it didn't say specifically if he had okay fought in any war i'm just not 100 percent sure he's like um, Chris, his grandson, seemed to be implying that maybe. Okay. But other than that, I'm not 100% sure. I don't know any specifics. The only thing I know about his past is some of his ancestors that we'll get into okay. and not even many specifics. So I really tried to dig into more about his life because I really wanted to focus on who he was because that's what we like to do for the victims in these stories. But right. I just couldn't find anything. So onto the weird stuff that may be a little bit over my head, but I'm going to try my best to explain what I found. 
So in a Web Sleuth post from December of 2018, Chris posts a link to an article that he says proves that Harrisburg State Hospital was a known site for the MK Ultra experiment. So if you're unfamiliar with what that is, here's an excerpt from an article on history.com. MKUltra's mind control experiments generally centered around behavior modification via electroshock therapy, hypnosis, polygraphs, radiation, and a variety of drugs, toxins, and chemicals. These experiments relied on a range of test subjects, some who freely volunteered, some who volunteered under coercion, and some who had absolutely no idea they were involved in a sweeping defense research program. From mentally impaired boys at a state school to American soldiers to sexual psychopaths, quote-unquote, at a state hospital, MKUltra's programs often preyed on the most vulnerable members of society. The CIA considered prisoners especially good subjects as they were willing to give consent in exchange for extra recreation time or commuted sentences. I feel like I've seen this. Like, Yeah, are you guys familiar at all? Um, I listened to an episode, well, it was a couple episodes of And That's Why We Drink, where M kind of broke down some different things with MK Ultra, and they also did, um, oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on the other one, that everyone thinks that Trump is. It's a letter. A letter? I don't know what I'm... I mean, you. What am I thinking? Of? I mean, you could be thinking of something real, and I just don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I feel like I've seen like we went to the Eastern State Penitentiary, and I feel like I've seen pictures of like rooms of something like this, and like I went somewhere, and I remember seeing pictures of like this is where they did electric shock therapy, and they did this, and they did that, like all these crazy things. And I was actually going to ask you if it was something that we think maybe happened to him. I know they used to also yeah. do something where they would like inject them with insulin until they'd pass out. There was something along oh, those Jesus. lines. I don't know about that. Wow. It was literally like being a rat, a rat, a lat. You know what I mean? Rat, 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 Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think of QAnon. Oh, so it was okay. The letter was QAnon, and anyway, M did a whole series on. MK Ultra and QAnon. This is another reason I wish we recorded these episodes on video sometimes. <laughs> oh my so, goodness. Oh, I'm not even explaining that. I'm just gonna let listeners be confused about what happened. That's fine. Um anyway, yes, I have briefly heard of MK Ultra, which was your original question. So MK Ultra sounds like super conspiracy theory, kind of like QAnon, but like most of it was real. It is, we'll get into, um, hard to track because of loss of records, <laughs> but, um, convenient. Yeah. A I large like, chunk of it has been proven. I feel like a lot of them either like burned down or like something happened to them and it destroys everything. <laughs> oh, you'll find yeah. out. <laughs> So if you are interested in reading the rest of that article, I can post the link on the blog so you can um, read more into that. It is very interesting. So LSD is a drug often mentioned when people discuss these experiments as it was used a lot, especially in the beginning stages in the late 50s. 
Now, it's recorded that by the early 60s, this unethical um, experimentation was curtailed, but it's widely believed that the CIA just took things deeper underground. And if you believe that, then it's completely plausible that shady shit was still happening in 69 when John went missing. And I mean, I could get on board with that all, but it seems absolutely possible. And if something went wrong, because there is at least one recorded death caused by the MK Ultra experiments within the CIA, um, there was a scientist that unwittingly drank something spiked with LSD, and then he jumped out a window. Fun. Oh. Yeah. So that was obviously kind of hard to cover up because it was internal. But imagine, you know, if there were deaths outside of the organization, I'm sure they would be pretty tucked under the rug. Um, is it a is it a spoiler alert if I say that there are tunnels under the hospital? Is that something you're getting? No, to? actually, because I don't get in the hospital too much because I know you're going to be covering that. And okay, um, but I well, had read something just... about the tunnels, and I'm like, ooh, <laughs> spooky. There's a lot of, and like you said, I'll get into it more, but there are tunnels under this hospital and there's some thoughts and experiences that people have that kind of relate the idea of MKUltra um, experimenting on people and then using these tunnels for their purposes. Hmm. But we'll go into it more beyond this. So there's a hospital um, in Lancaster that in the last year had a patient with um, mental disabilities that actually drowned in the lake that's on the property, and it wasn't in the news that I saw. Uh, Sketchy. I feel like that's something. I don't remember hearing about that. That's sketchy at the same time, just not surprising. Because how are you going to get more patients if they think that, if their family thinks that they're going to go there and something bad's going to happen to them? Well, that's true. I mean, true. why let somebody unstable outside by themselves? Near water. We were just talking about that. Records at this time were ordered to be destroyed by the director of MK Ultra for vague reasons uh, after the government started investigating because there was a whole investigation into all of this because obviously <clears throat> a lot of the subjects were unwitting. So they had no idea. And you can't just do that. <laughs> There was an investigation, but the director was like, he cited reasons like the people that were being experimented on that they would be embarrassed and he was trying to protect them. So that's a whole pile of bullshit, I'm sure. Oh, so he's gaslighting the entire situation (laughs) to make it look like he's helping the other person, but really only benefiting himself. I feel like he knows Hillary Clinton. Maybe. Probably. Um. There were, I think, like 20,000 documents or something found about these experiments, but still like a large majority of them were destroyed. I mean, that's 20,000 is probably such a tiny drop in the puddle of what went on. Yeah, so that's how we know that it happened, but to detail it is really hard. Right. So Chris also mentions that early on in the investigation, police mentioned LSD slash acid experimentation that John was a part of, but I can't find proof of this anywhere because articles were very limited. So I never saw anything about that. And like I said, I can get on board with all of that, 
But in this same WebSleuths post, Chris also posts a link to a 573-page document titled The Illuminati Formula for Creating an Undetectable Total Mind Control Slave. And I think I sent that screenshot to you guys at one point. I don't know if you saw it, but I because it, it was it just struck me as so weird while I was researching because I'm going along with all this stuff that is like you know, could be totally possible. And then there's this giant document about how to create a mind control slave. I feel like, do we need to have a break right now so that I can go downstairs and grab tin foil to make a hat out of it? Maybe. Like, I feel like that's the level that we are approaching. I'll stay with you, but... It's getting there. I, I feel like that's the direction we're I heading. I feel like I just saw a TikTok with, there's a book that someone wrote that's like super controversial that's talking about how to like basically gaslight people and control everybody oh my god so i'm not that shook by it well yeah and i mean that's a kind of exactly what this is it's basically a hand uh handbook to create mind-controlled slaves and how to brainwash someone so Yikes. Number one, no, I did not read through it all. And two, no dedication. Two, no dedication. No, I will not post a link because that seems irresponsible. <laughs> but it's out there. If you really wanted to find it, it's out there. Um, and I don't know a lot about this stuff, like I mentioned, but I don't understand how these things necessarily go hand in hand because MK Ultra has proof behind it, if not all the specific details because destroyed files, but the Illuminati seems a little out of left field. That's where the tinfoil hat comes in for me. <laughs> yeah. Not that I don't believe in the Illuminati, but as soon as something else is going on and immediately it's like, oh, and also the Illuminati's involved. It's like, okay, this is, this is too much. Pick one. Yeah. Pick one. Yep. Yeah. I'm not going to get super in depth in this part <clears throat> because the info is a bit convoluted and... Honestly, I could probably look into it further because it has to do with like ancestry. So I should have partnered with Amanda Moore because she is on point with this stuff. But basically, Chris is alleging that John was targeted because he had a semi-distant relative or semi-distant relatives that were a significant part of communism in Russia. Um, John was born in the U.S. from what I can gather. I believe his father left Russia before John was born, um, though John did speak Russian. So he was taken to a military base, and I assume he's alleging it was the Carlisle military base um, because he mentioned he believes he's buried there and interviewed. Chris says that he died during interrogation because he didn't have any information to give up. So it seems like he's saying that John was a victim of MK Ultra, but ultimately died because of violent interrogation techniques. And I get that they're kind of um, overlapping. It's a lot of like convoluted information, basically saying he was targeted because he was Russian and interrogated in such a way that he ended up dead and they had to cover it up. Which in that time period, I can 100% see it. Definitely not as um, out in left field as Illuminati. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of Chris's last update posts from is from July 2019, and I've edited grammar slightly for clarity. So I'm sure, Sarah, you can get on board with this, but I have a lot harder time believing people when their grammar and spelling is not good. <laughs> it just sounds so much it's... more like rambling, especially when you throw in the Illuminati and then you can't structure a sentence properly. 
it's it's tough a lot of that goes a lot deeper but yeah it definitely is kind of a a visual turnoff when you see like oh you're talking about something important but you're not well spoken with yeah. it so yeah it's really easy to turn from stuff like that. That was part of the reason why I couldn't totally understand how he, um, John, was related to these Russian um, okay. communists. So, so his post reads, and the final piece of the story, the big secret that still keeps this confidential or classified, has already been told. The U.S. had a spy who befriended Bolslaw Chocha, who is a relative of John who was in Russia, and he was something like a great uncle, I believe, who found out about his family in the U.S. who he had never met. The U.S. had to make sure, and here it's unclear what exactly they were making sure of. So they interviewed John Chocha under LSD, where he died pledging allegiance to the United States of America. Fearful of wrongful death and race to the moon, amongst other things, the government covered it up with a false story. And I understand that the race to the moon was with Russia, but I don't really see any other connection here. Oh, the spy was extradited and lived out his life in the U.S., while the Chocha family lived under false suspicion ever since. So, he was targeted because... Russian spy. So if they don't know, I mean, obviously this is a guess, but there has to be something else that leads them to think that he died pledging allegiance to the United States of America. Like there has to, that's too specific. Right? How would you unless know he that? Was, unless something got convoluted in translation, not literal translation, but just storytelling between people where someone maybe said he died as a proud American, and so it got transferred into died pledging allegiance to the flag. But, like, if you don't know that he was questioned, if you don't know that he was for sure under LSD, if you don't know that he was definitely involved in this, where are we getting this idea that he died pledging allegiance to the flag of the United States of America? Especially if they tried so hard to cover it up so they wouldn't get in trouble, why would someone that was there offer up this information? Because that's the only way, right? Yeah. I feel like there was a TV show, and no, not Cold Justice, um, but I feel like there was a TV show where there was a guy and he was Russian and he was pretending to be schizophrenic or pretending to be crazy because he knew that if they found out that he was a Russian spy, that they would want information from him. And, um, but I forget, like, I can't remember the name of it. Maybe if someone knows, they can let us know, but there was something along those lines and that he specifically acted that way to not get sent back to Russia because of a failed mission or something along those lines. Hmm. And of course, it could just be TV, but, you know. Could be. Well, that's true. It's interesting because I'm, I feel like there's a lost connection there because they weren't accusing him of being the spy. Well, they, it was a U.S. spy. Right. That had, I'm assuming, been a spy in Russia. So Dude Man was in Russia. I would say dude woman, but we know in the 70s they weren't sending women as spies. So dude man's over in Russia and becomes friends with 
Chocha the first. And then well, it wasn't his dad or anything. Well, yeah, diff- but the oldest. Chocha. Yeah. But then linked him as great uncles, as a great uncle. To John. And then yeah. maybe wanting to bring him in so they could get more information about this great uncle. I, I like guess. I'm trying to piece together and it's taking a very long string. And I can definitely send you the link to like the web sleuth thread so you can read it over yourself. But um, I think you did send yeah, it. Yeah, I tried to pull it, it together in me. the most cohesive way. But yeah, do you think the U.S. spy like actually befriended him? Or are we saying befriended like so he could follow him? I'm guessing so he could. Maybe secrets. I mean, I feel like if he, if they were looking for something specific, if the great uncle was in the military, and maybe John was in the military too. Um, do we know if been? Do we know if he was ever in Russia, or is he just always in the United States? I don't know. I think you said he was born in Russia or in the U S born in the U S and there was something about his father vowing to never go back. So I kind of, um, assumed that he had never, that John had never been to Russia, but he did speak Russian. There's something, I feel like if, if anything, that there's something there as far as Russian military and knowing something. And if it was his dad who vowed never to go back, it could be because, of the uncle and everything going on. And maybe they did have some secret information and they did take things too far. I mean, torture the yeah. closest ones to you to get which one, yeah. depending on what it is. I don't know too many people that have left a country, immigrated somewhere else, and then not wanted to go back if they had positive experiences. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, most people that I know that say I would never go back to my home country are people that have had horrible experiences there. So, I mean, I feel like there's definitely something that drove John's whole family out. Well, definitely that communism. his dad didn't want to go back to. Communism. Well, that's yes. true, too. Just living under communism, he wouldn't want to return. Yeah. So anyway, there you have it. The government conspiracy that could be behind the disappearance of John Chocha Jr. Um, Chris also writes this in the third to last post in the thread that I could find. Some of you know that during the investigation, we found that it was and still is up to very recently a common practice for HHS which is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, to kidnap or place kids and adults into state hospitals, drug them, and then relocate the kids to different states with a new Social Security number, same date of birth, and a different, typically variation of their original name into the orphanage system. Approximately 200-plus kids during this process, the parents are never told, as well as law enforcement, so wrong in so many different ways. I'm sorry, what? what? So, yes, it's like these logical, possibly logical things that he's saying, and then he just dots it with these crazy accusations. So, 
Like, what would, what would the purpose of doing that be? Like, this isn't a baby broker operation or like a, a sex ring. This is a, like the state. What, what is the point of I have no idea. Going through I can't all of wrap that. my brain around some of this. What's the gain? Where's and it if it's if it's state, it's government. So my brain is immediately saying, what's the financial right. gain? Which I think Amanda's pretty much where you first went to by saying it's not a baby broker. Like how how are they benefiting from doing something like this? Unless it's some sort of way to say like you need to rely on these systems to keep your kids safe but if kids are going into those systems and then disappearing it's not working i'm guessing it may have something to do with like the experimentation of these things right. but i still don't quite get it and it's so specific Different states with a new social security number, but the same date of birth. Like, Well, depending on the age of the kids, they probably know their birthday. They're not going to know their social security number. That's fair. And I mean, saying that they have a different name, but it's typically a variation of their original name. They could very easily be um, made to believe or groomed into believing that their old name was a nickname and this is really their real name or this is a nickname for their real name or you yeah. know i mean it it to take a name like i don't know allison and then switch it to alice or sarah has know. an alice in wonderland obsession <laughs> I also looked at my background screen, which has a picture of someone named Allison. So it kind of worked. Oh, came at it from a different angle than I thought. <laughs> it is just, it's strange how he goes from like something kind of plausible to like just totally left field. And I get it. Like I said, the whole basis of his campaign is more transparency and like mental health and healthcare in general. But I'm like, where did you pull this from? Like, where did it come from? I mean, there's a lot of allegations like I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Johnny Gosh case, um, but the summary of it is he was a teenager, preteen, like middle school age that was delivering newspapers, disappeared on a newspaper run, was like not seen for years and years and years and years and years, presumed dead. Um, I think they found his bike and like the rest of the newspapers he was supposed to deliver. And there's a, a, a claim from his mother that he showed up at her doorstep the one day and said, listen, I can't leave where I am because I need to help these other people get free. But he wound up involved in like a political child sex ring where they were literally abducting kids and pulling them into this sex ring. And I mean, there's obviously a lot more detail that goes into it. And the mom does a lot of trying to get in touch and get these things. But, you know, he tells stories about very major political and just kind of popular people, um, big names in the world at that time that were all involved with this stuff that had the kind of money that could shush people. I don't know if it's the same circle, but same same deal yeah. um so it it wouldn't surprise me honestly to find out that something like this was happening God, that's so sad. which sounds bad yeah. but 
but it does. So that, the story you just said sounds literally like Stephen White Knight, but with a car instead of a bike. And secondly, and he was older, but yeah, you're dude, right. I was thinking that as well. Yeah. And secondly, yeah. dude man's 57 years old, so they're not taking him and changing his social well, security true. number to put him in a different state. So like, that's yeah, true. So <laughs> definitely not related to that. I just had to throw in something else that was just I'm bizarre. Like, bizarre. Yes. <sighs> Regardless of whether you believe this theory or that he may have drowned in the nearby Susquehanna River or that he could be buried somewhere on the hospital grounds, his remains potentially paved over over the course of landscaping changes and construction, we do know that John's body has never been found. Members of his family, especially Chris, are still looking for closure. So here's a description of John Chocha Jr. given at the time of his disappearance. So he is 57 years old. He would now be 104, so I think it's pretty um, assumed that he is no longer alive. He was a white male, 6 feet tall, 145 to 175 pounds, gray or partially gray hair, and blue eyes. He had no distinguishing marks or physical characteristics that were listed, and the clothing worn at the time of disappearance is unknown. So just a note about this. Did no one see him that day? And we already know that he was last seen at 11 a.m. that morning. So did the patients wear specific clothing, I have to imagine, or was there clothing of his that was missing? Because even if they didn't have some type of uniform, which they probably did, I doubt his wardrobe was extensive. I would think because he had that kind of like get out of the hospital card, you know, where he could go to town frequently. Um, he probably had like jeans and shirts that he could go to town in. And I don't know. I mean, we did say that in this time, a lot of these hospitals were like overwhelmed with patients. So I don't know that every nurse or doctor or person working there would have known what all of the town clothing was that you know people would keep so it's possible that maybe he switched into that um and maybe escaped through a new employee that wouldn't have recognized him out of quote-unquote scrubs or you know a hospital gown or whatever and maybe he was able to just kind of sneak out in plain sight that's true and that's a really sad illustration of how overrun the hospitals had become as well and i the one record i could find was a partial list of hospital staff and i couldn't even really read it it wasn't really legible legible but it was like the staff and then how many patients they were um responsible for so it was just like an enormous amount of patients that one person was responsible for at least on their shift so it that is possible so when he went on these excursions to other towns, did someone pick him up? Did he take a taxi? Because like you said, he probably did have other clothing. I can't imagine he went in like his jumpsuit or whatever they wore. I know like when we take people to the hospital with um, like in a mental crisis, they put them in like paper clothing. So I'm sure they have something better than paper clothing, but... Um, usually it's so that they can't like strangle themselves or whatnot. 
Yeah, the idea that I get from this is that he could honestly like sign himself out or walk out the door and just get himself to town. And I don't know if maybe town was like walkable or -hmm. if he did take a taxi, but it just doesn't seem like anyone really put him in a taxi or something. When you leave the state hospital and like knowing about these tunnels and stuff, there's one, and I don't know if it was there when, when the hospital was still operational, but there's one that goes right under Cameron street to the farm show. And if you follow that, that literally takes you into Harrisburg city. So it's not, it's pretty easy. Like I said, I don't know if it was there then. I know that we've parked on the state hospital grounds and walked underneath Cameron street because Cameron street is really busy and like during farm show season. And of course it smells like pee and it's kind of dirty and scary, but, um, if that was there, I mean, it's a possibility. He easily could have gotten into the city. Very easily. Even, even if he went away from the river and went up behind where it is. I mean, there's... That was all field. A lot. Elmerton? All, I mean, yeah. I mean, he could hide in fields, though. I mean, eventually he would reach, like... Progress Avenue. What is that? Yeah, over on Progress. I was thinking, I was going to say Paxton and knew it wasn't Paxton. But yeah. It would I make mean, more sense to go into the city. But if you're trying to avoid oh, yeah, people, then going towards Progress would definitely be. You'd be fields, middle, and yeah. nowhere. I think the whole time I was researching, my alternate theory was just kind of like. He was allowed to go into town, but he had schizophrenia. So either something accidentally happened to him or someone took advantage of him while he was in town. That's but true. honestly, if you boil it down to something simpler than maybe even like MK Ultra or stuff like that, maybe he was being either treated poorly or neglected, you know, due to the overcrowding in the hospital. And he just ran away. I mean, is it also possible that he died in the hospital and they lied or didn't record it apparently there's um a number of unmarked graves on the hospital grounds i'm sure you knew that or will know that (laughs) um 81 and 83 are not far from there too so yeah i mean there's another way to 322s right there to hitchhike and get out of dodge if you need to it's interesting because I told you this before we started recording that, like working on the ambulance and taking people to the hospital on Front Street in Harrisburg, um, before they did, they remodeled the um, psych rooms, as we called them, were right next to the EMS entrance. And there was a guy who actually like snuck out and got away. And that was maybe eight years ago, nine years ago. So even in today's time when there's cameras and we had pin pads that we have to use and key cards to swipe and stuff like you're still able they're still able to get out yeah yeah and how far away did you say it was six or eight miles from the hospital yeah wild yeah he got from um harrisburg hospital which is like upmc harrisburg now the whole way down to pizza hut on front street if anyone's familiar with that area wow well yeah it does happen so For John, DNA, dental records, and fingerprints are all available for possible doe identification. 
So if you have any information on the whereabouts of John Chocha Jr., please call Pennsylvania State Police at 717-671-7500 or specifically Troop H at 717-787-7777. That sounds like a fake number, but it's not. And ask to speak with Trooper George Lokitis Jr. So the agency case number is H. 01-0785-633, and the name is case number is 7201. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, and it's Sarah. And for the second part of today's episode, we're going to piggyback a little bit off of what you heard on the first part of the episode. So we previously recorded part one and it made me kind of want to dig a little bit deeper into uh, Harrisburg State Hospital. So uh, part two today, we're going to chat a little bit about the hospital itself and um, all of the fun and spooky and weird things that come with it. So a little bit of history is that it was a mental hospital and nope, we're going to just take that whole sentence out okay so a little bit of history here is that um the state hospitals started in the 18th century there really weren't many safe places for mentally insane people to find treatment many of the mental hospitals that started to pop up were private and only those with a disposable income could afford to put a family member into the hospital for treatment. Um, there was a woman named Dorothea Dix, and she was a social reformer. She led a movement that brought about what is now known as the Harrisburg State Hospital, which was a public hospital for mental health treatment. At the time, it was nothing like the outpatient therapy that we think of now where you might go um, to speak to a therapist or you might have different types of therapy. Um, it was very much a new thing, for lack of a better term. Um, and when it was first founded, it had a very honest, but now looking in hindsight, kind of um, off-putting name. So in 1845, it was known as the Pennsylvania State Lunatic Asylum and Union Asylum for the Insane. So the name was eventually changed in 1941 to the Harrisburg State Hospital, um, and that's what it remains known as today, even though it's not in practice anymore. Um, it also came to be known as the City on the Hill. Um, so it is located like we said in the first part of the episode with Grace's case, um, it is in Harrisburg, PA. So that's why we have it called the Harrisburg State Hospital. Um, but it is kind of up on a hill and it really functioned as its own city. I mean, it had everything that patients needed. There was recreation, there were stores. Um, they obviously lived there. Uh, they could get all their medical care, whatever. So it, it came to be known as the city on the hill. For reference, it's next to the state the farm show building, which everyone seems to know where that is. In case you're that way and yeah. see it, and don't know what that is because it's all office buildings now. Yeah, it's it actually one of the tunnels that is part of the original system is the tunnel that goes under Cameron Street 
if you like park across the street and are walking over to the farm show building, you can actually go through tunnels that at one point were part of the um, asylum. So it's kind of cool to see when you park, sorry, when you park up on that hill and they like bust you down because you go through there and you get to see all of the buildings. Yeah. It is really cool. I had to run over to my office for work the other day, which is right in that same area. So um, when I came home, I went the long way and I just drove all around the campus because I could. So um, it was kind of cool to be in the process of researching it and then just driving through it. I've driven through it a thousand times before, but it's different when you're actually looking into the history of it. So um if the patients could afford it, they paid $2.50 a week. But if patients couldn't afford it, it was a state hospital and the counties would cover that cost, at least initially. When I was researching John Chota and I looked up what two fifty would be today and I can't for the life of me remember it. I can't even remember words. Well, but, thank you so much for sharing uh, the fact that you can't remember it. That's that's helpful. But I, I remember that it was I remember that it was very affordable. Like if it were, you know, in today's money. I don't I don't know. Maybe we can look it up. But I was just as someone who has sought mental health care, I was like, Oh, it must have been nice to be able to afford <laughs> Just things like that. <laughs> yeah, so that sounds so expensive. Um, it says that two fifty in eighteen forty five is equivalent to about ninety dollars today. I paid almost double that for my previous therapist when I was going. Yeah, it's insane. Well, it's weird to think that Landon getting him like therapy services and, st and stuff like that. Some of the agencies around here, they will not take you like out of pocket. You have to have um, state insurance or they will not even work with you. It doesn't even matter if you want to private pay it. So it's so interesting to see how different like places take that kind of stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the counties would cover it if the families couldn't or um, whatever. But I mean, that it was a really reasonable price and they were barely breaking even. Um, and with that cost, it would cover their board and the medical attention that they would need. Now, the treatment that they gave was said to be very humane, at least for the times. I heard a lot of verbal claims from, you know, people that I know that are in the area because we're so close to it and uh, different documentaries and stuff. There were a lot of verbal claims where they said they would perform lobotomies and electroshock therapies. I couldn't actually find that anywhere written in text in historical documents. Um, and I was searching it, trying to find it, and I could not. I did find proof of um, hydrotherapy, which is a water-based therapy, and rain-style therapy, where I guess patients would just stand in like a shower area and attendants would spray them with different nozzles. So like, I'm just imagining a hose that you have outside that has like 12 different settings. And apparently the different feeling of the water was like soothing in some way. Like it was an experimental way of treating it, but it was just water. So it wasn't dangerous. I don't know. It, I just cry in the shower and that's free, but 
<laughs> you too for $2.50 a week can be host. Oh, Lord. Um, but I was thinking when you said about the electroshock therapy and lobotomies, like those are probably pretty expensive experimental procedures. So if they were barely breaking even, then I can't imagine they were like bringing in, I mean, unless they were doing like back alley right. lobotomies and like here's a nice pick in your eyeball but i mean it's harrisburg so we we don't know but. maybe so like autism and stuff used to be classified as schizophrenia and so it would land them in here and me thinking of like the way my kid enjoys like the sensory he loves the shower because it he can like let it hit his back or rain across his head and whatnot so i'd imagine that is kind of soothing Oh, I can totally see it because I'm the same way. I'm weird with textures and I love just water, like whether I'm in the pool or the shower or I just love water. Um, so I can I can definitely see how that would work. Um, I think water is soothing for a lot of people. I mean, yeah. even listening to like the waves at the beach or taking a bubble bath, it's a very soothing thing. And humans are composed of so much water that it's kind of a grounding technique as well, I think, um, like a grounding treatment to kind of cleanse literally and figuratively. Um, but the earliest treatment that was used was honestly just giving them medical attention, food and fresh air. Um, the first building, if you go to the campus now, it, it is a campus. Um, there's, I believe, over 30 buildings or near 30 buildings. Um, some have been taken down, but the original building doesn't stand anymore. But it was mainly windows that would open to give fresh air, kind of like most hospital wards for tuberculosis were. Because honestly, fresh air was one of the best treatments. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Then they started doing the water therapies. Um, and then they also were utilizing occupational therapy. Um, but now, of course, being a teacher of semi-young children, occupational therapy to me is like working on fine motor skills and gross motor skills. But it can also be um, kind of working with gross motor skills in the full body sense of like how to do specific jobs and and things that were needed and that's a lot of what they would utilize there i would think like feeding themselves dressing themselves like basic hygiene stuff like that is usually what or at least what they work on with my son with autism yeah um and that was definitely part of it they did also talk about like and they kind of lumped it in with almost like shadowing, like how I would think of shadowing jobs now. Like someone wanted to be a farmer, so they would go do work days on the farm, but with an occupational therapist. So it was kind of all of that together, I guess. But patients started rolling in, including some inmates from Eastern State Penitentiary, since we talked about that last week. Um, and some of the patients from ESP actually escaped in the late 1800s. I don't know if they were ever caught. I couldn't find details. So, I mean, they're, they're dead now. So I don't know. But um, finances kept getting tighter and tighter. Um, there's a great website linked in our blog post with all of the specific years and the numbers 
numbers of patients, numbers financially. It's like a number nerd's dream. Um, it, and even me, I don't really particularly like numbers, but it was really interesting to look at the chart and see how things were changing. Um, the hospital also became a treatment facility for Civil War soldiers who were at Camp Curtin, which is a little bit deeper into the city of Harrisburg. Or at least deeper in the way that I think of it now. Um, numbers started to spiral out of control and the hospital could no longer house the number of patients they were receiving. So in order to compensate for that, um, they started doing two different things. One, they converted existing locations on the grounds like bathrooms and infirmaries into patient rooms and wards, which I don't want the room that used to be a bathroom, please. I'll take a different one. Um, and they would also only start accepting patients who were most recently diagnosed as having a mental illness. Um, despite that, the overcrowding continued to be an issue, especially when the Danville State Hospital burned in 1881. And many of the women from that facility came to Harrisburg until they were able to rebuild and then return to Danville. So um, it was always absolutely packed. Um, I just used to live down the street from the Danville State Hospital and I never, like I was a kid, so I had no idea what it was, but we used to like go sledding down that hill. <laughs> just saying, I don't know. Interesting tidbit about <laughs> me. <laughs> well, I have a question. Did they just not like turn people away? They had to take everybody. Was there not like a waiting list or like what? What's the what? I don't know. So... It said um, that it because it was a public hospital for mental health treatment, that anyone within the Commonwealth could apply. And I guess as long as they had mental health needs, they would be accepted because it was a state hospital. I think it's I think like of public schools and being a teacher in a public school, if we have a student apply to our charter school. As long as they live in the state of Pennsylvania, we have to accept them. So I'm thinking it was probably a similar, you know, as long as it was a Pennsylvania resident that had proof of some sort of mental illness, they had to accept them at that time. But I'm not 100% I would assume, sure. I would assume like a hospital, you know, if you go there and they can treat your illness or injury, they regardless of whether or not you have insurance, they take you. Right. Yeah, but at the same token, they obviously will re they will like if there is like a crazy accident or like things like that, they will shut their doors and reroute ambulances to another That's hospital. True. So like they're at there's at a point you can't take people. I don't know. I'm there's, in my mind. The majority if they reroute, they would Typically, if it's like a trauma or something like that, it would be a better suited like from a level two to a level one trauma center. But when it comes to like transporting psych patients, Harrisburg will put them on divert and then you have to go to like osteo or one of the other local hospitals. And typically around full moon, they they all kind of divert and you just kind of keep calling and find out who you can go to. So that's interesting. I, yeah, I don't know what they would do in that situation. I wonder if it was part of the times, too. I mean, you know, we're looking at the 19th century, so, you know, we're 150, 200 years off, depending on 
where in the 1800s we are. So, I mean, a lot has changed in 150 years. Bunk beds. Lots of triple bunk beds. So much room for activities. <laughs> yes. All right. So, um, like I said, the numbers were spiraling out of control. So they put those um, two things into play. However, um, they just kept growing and growing and growing. So between the late 1800s and early 1900s, the existing building on campus, like I said, there was only one building at the beginning, was completely demolished, but it was demolished bit by bit. So it was demolished in five separate sections. Um, and then new buildings were added, which are the buildings that we see now if we go to the grounds. Um, there are somewhere around 30 buildings on the campus. Um, and like I said before, it's pretty cool to drive through, but I guess that makes me suspicious. So I don't know. Um, in modern history, Governor Rendell closed the hospital to patients. Um, he did that in January of 06. And <clears throat> excuse me. And that's when the buildings became utilized for state government offices. Uh, the movie Girl Interrupted was filmed in part across the campus, um, specifically in the admin building. Um, they, I actually just watched the movie today because my husband was at his parents' house and I could. Um, and there's not too many scenes that happen directly within the hospital, um, but it was kind of cool to like see there's a scene with um, like the bridges over the Susquehanna and it was kind of cool as she's sitting there looking out of the river like oh hey I've been on those bridges that's weird and cool I don't know I associate with weird crap like that anyway um the movie Another Harvest Moon was also filmed there um and the production crew for Girl Interrupted actually said that the grounds were more perfect for the movie than they could have imagined um, there was a web page called The Asylum Tourist, and I found a pretty interesting quote here um, straight from the website. And it said, quote, the production design team also decorated many other areas of the state hospital campus, including offices in the administration building and several hundred yards of the miles of underground tunnels that snake their way underneath the campus. Additionally, the design team landscaped much of the hospital grounds, according to the seasonal changes to dictated within the script um and i just thought that was cool they were utilizing um the tunnels and that's definitely one of the more iconic um elements of the grounds and it's something that a lot of people um talk about when they talk about kind of stories and weird things going on on the grounds um so Sorry. Can you still go in the tunnels? I have no idea. I mean, I know you can do the one under Cameron Street, but I know are the other that ones they're still? at least accessible because there were um, two different like ghost hunter shows that went there and investigated, and they investigated in the tunnels um, as recently as <laughs> earlier this year. So I know they are accessible, but I don't know if they're accessible to the public. Road trip. It's a very far road trip for us, you know. <laughs> yeah, whole 10 miles. <laughs> it's really, really far. Um, before we dive into some stories from people that have been in the building, um, we do have to mention the true crime aspect of this location. So Grace already talked about 
the kind of cold case that we have associated with this location. But there are some solved cases that I'm just going to kind of glance over pretty quickly. Um, one homicide is that of Beverly L. Rines by fellow patient Henry Miller. Um, and they actually sued the hospital personnel for not adequately supervising Henry. And by they, I mean Beverly's family. Um, we do see often that the answer to so many defendants, you know, admitting like, oh, yeah, I did this. But because I was mentally insane. So, um, I mean, what do you do when a mentally insane person murders someone else while they're at a facility getting treatment? You go for the people that are treating them and in charge of them. So Beverly's husband claims that the maximum security and minimum security patients should never have been allowed to be together on the campus. And apparently Henry Miller was a maximum security patient and Beverly was a minimum security patient. If they would have been kept separate, the husband claims that Beverly never would have died the way she did, which, I mean, he's not wrong, but. What year was this in? Because remember when we talked about John Chocha being allowed to have town privileges, even though he was schizophrenic, like uh, it seems like they didn't have too many good boundaries at that time. Yeah. So um, he was furloughed that night to go stay with his parents who lived in York. And I guess there was <clears throat> there was some sort of fight between him and his mom. And he actually went and killed his mom. And then when he got caught for murdering his mom, who he stabbed and strangled, he admitted that a couple weeks prior, he had actually stabbed and strangled someone on the campus. And it was Beverly. And he said that he had put her body under leaves, which kind of reminds me of the um, Fort Indian Town Gap dough that we talked about how she was just covered with like leaves and branches and he just let her by the morgue and then eventually they found her so she was missing for a few weeks then from the sounds of it they didn't realize that she was missing which is horrible interesting okay so overcrowding and maybe not so great record keeping and sorry and when did you say that was did i miss it 1973 Okay, so not too long after John. Yeah. That's what $2.50 gets you a week. Well, it's fair. So another case that happened was that of Mary Hazity. She was a 35-year-old patient in the hospital when she was found hanging from a beam in her ward in the early morning. Uh, the doctor, Edward Green, said that Mary had used her clothing to fashion a noose from which she hanged herself. So it also kind of goes to show you, you know, no matter what, they try to do to keep people safe if people are truly dedicated to that idea of ending their life they're going to try to find a way to do it however they can well you see that even to today there's it blows my mind people are still able to kill themselves yeah. uh in like high security facilities so yeah in prisons um you know they use like bed sheets and stuff and you could tell which ones were serious. This sounds really horrible, but you could tell which ones were serious because they would wet the clothes or the sheet first because you can't untie it when it's wet. So then they would then they would hang themselves. If it wasn't wet, then it was more of like a cry for help. 
Interesting. Interesting. It is. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, I mean, look, Jeffrey Epstein just did it, so. Mm. Yeah, mm. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> Back away. Um, Back away. But that hanging took place in 1926. So, um, you know, that was 45 years before this other murder. And then there was another murder, and I didn't write down the year for this one, and I'm totally blanking on when it was. Um, but there was a patient, Moses Sweet, who got a friend to bring razor blades to him when this friend visited. And then he had three razor blades total. And the one morning when the doctor came around to just do morning checks and whatever, uh, the patient just leapt at the doctor and sliced him across the throat and he died within 15 minutes. Yikes. Um, the doctor killed was named Dr. Booth Miller. And he, I think, I forgot to write this down, but I'm pretty sure he had just recently graduated from UPenn um, and he had only been practicing with them for about three years. That's so, horrible. Yeah. Um, it, it was... Yeah, it was not a great place to be. And if you watch or look up any of the uh, like paranormal shows that have done this location, they give even some more examples of different deaths that occurred. Um, but I mean, it was a hospital. There's a lot of death. Um, but those were three of the more violent ones that kind of stood out because they weren't death by sickness. Um, although I suppose the the death by suicide is kind of death by sickness, but the other two were, were definite murders. Um, but on to a little bit of supernatural fun. So I'm going to start with the personal stories that I got from people before rolling into what you can find on Discovery Plus. And I'm not going to go into too much detail about what's on the shows on Discovery Plus, but I will tell you the names of the shows if you want to look them up and watch them. Um, so for starters, I already mentioned that there were some movies filmed on the ground. Uh, and when Girl Interrupted was filmed, I was a tiny tot, but my best friend's older sister, who is 10 years older than us, was an extra in the movie. So she told me a little bit about like just kind of what it was like to be there. And then later in life, she actually ended up working for the Department of Human Services. And at the time she worked for them, uh, they actually had their offices in um, like on the hospital grounds. So she was there a little bit as an extra, but then she also worked there for a little bit. So um, she and I sat down for just a little bit. She told me some of the stories and um, something you'll notice in a lot of the stories that I will mention after this one is that a lot of voices that are heard seem to be female voices or like children's voices um but monica who is my friend's sister said she would hear a man's voice calling people's names um now she was in the hillcrest building where the department of human services is and it's kind of on the back end of the campus if you go in from the cameron street side um and it's back by like some of the fields that are toward the back of the acreage um, she said, especially when she was working alone, she would hear her name called out. Um, usually if she came in early or was working overtime just to get some extra money. And usually that would be when most people weren't there. Um, when the office had more people in it, you really wouldn't hear anything. 
Um, but she said she started to hear her name specifically being called out after she had been working there for about six months. But she said it was never really an unsafe area. It never really felt dangerous and she wasn't scared. It was just weird to be sitting at your desk and hear someone say your name when you know you're alone in the room. Um, one of the only other things that she mentioned was that sometimes there would be stacks of like 100 pieces of paper and they would just fall. Um, she said it wasn't, you know, like four or five would fly off the top as if there was a wind gust. It was, you know, this entire stack of papers would just fall. And, you know, she said they tried seeing if they could find a draft. They tried, you know, like, was it wind that was coming in through a certain direction that was hitting just that right spot? And she said it, it definitely could be discredited. But it was just a really weird coincidence that it happened so many times. Um, and then as far as when she was on the campus for the filming of the movie, uh, because there were so many people, she said there really weren't many creepy experiences, but it was just kind of weird to be in the buildings and especially in the tunnels. Um, and then I heard from a lot of people who said the area just gave them the creeps in general. Um, one of my mom's friends, Barb, said that when she worked on campus as a state employee, she would always tell her coworkers to send someone after her if she wasn't back in 15 minutes because it always just had that weird vibe. Um, and she said that sometimes she would say it as a joke, but that there was a definite like, okay, no, but really, if I don't come back or can someone go with me or, you know, like she said, sometimes it just really had that eerie feeling and you did not want to be alone. Um, another one of my friends mentioned that while working overtime by herself, she thought she heard someone say her name from behind her, but there was nobody there. Um, she also thought that she saw a shadow in the bathroom once or twice. And one of her coworkers absolutely refused to go to the bathroom if nobody else was there. Like she had to have a bathroom buddy or at least someone else that was nearby because of just an eerie, creepy feeling. And then um, another story that came from a friend, a friend of a friend on Facebook um, was from a woman who worked at a daycare on the campus while patients were still there. So pre-2006. And she said there were times where she would see a man just staring at the kids from the window. Um, now, I don't know if that was an occupied building and it was a patient that was just staring out or if she was saying that it was a like supernatural man staring out the window. Either way, that's creepy. Um, and she said everything just felt so cold and sterile, which it's a hospital. Like You're going to have that. Uh, but she said she didn't work there very long because there was just this overwhelming feeling of being completely uncomfortable. Um, and then the recorded experiences, honestly, from the Ghost Nation episodes, um, which are the last two episodes of season two, I think it's episodes 19 and 20, and the Ghost Lab episode, um, and it's the second half of, I want to say it might be episode 11. I forgot to write it down, but the episode is called The Morgue, and it's in season two. Um, I honestly got more history out of it than paranormal experiences. Um, now, 
that's not to discredit the investigators at all. Um, they attempted to interact with what they could. They're just, you know, really other than a shadow here, a whisper there, and that general creepy feeling, there wasn't much going on. Um, some of the evidence that seemed most compelling to the investigators came from the tunnels and just like loud noises but they're underground tunnels if you know a water droplet falls on one end of the tunnel it's going to echo through the whole thing um so i always watch these things with a lens of skepticism and it just really seemed like you know there were footsteps whispers knocks but nothing really too crazy seemed to go on so as old as the building is and as much death as the campus has seen i really think that the locals myself included just kind of make up some of the ghost stories and just kind of let the ghost stories live on because it's cool i guess to have this haunted place. So I just wanted to add this fun story in, and it's actually about the Eastern State Penitentiary, but I figured while we were talking about creepy things, I just, since I didn't get to be on last week's episode due to scheduling conflicts. <laughs> um, she likes but, her sister more than us. Yeah. Like it, God forbid. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Um, so I have a friend who lives in or lived in Philadelphia and she actually did some a little bit of acting at one point and she was in a reenactment I believe it was Ghost Hunters that did an episode about um Eastern State Penitentiary. So she was in one of those weird reenactments and I watched it and there's a scene where she's down like a row of cells. And all of a sudden she's like screaming and freaking out. And I was like, wow, you're, you're really good. And she's like, actually during that scene, I was down there in the dark and I saw someone like moving in the cell. So that scream was real. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> but Yikes. I just thought it was like wow. so weird. Cause I was like, you're a great actress. She's like, actually I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> So no acting here, just yeah. terror. <laughs> I mean, she's still a good actress. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> no discredit to her. But when yeah. you're actually being haunted, it's a little bit easier to be authentic. Yeah. So anyway, that's my little story. <laughs> but with with the Harrisburg State Hospital, it just seems like some people are fully convinced that it is absolutely haunted and they'll tell you ghost stories for hours. And then other people I know that have worked there for 30 years say there's nothing going on. And I haven't spent time myself in there, but from the, um, the recorded experiences on discovery plus there doesn't seem to be too, too much going on, but. I feel like also places where people have suffered always have some sort of vibe, especially if you're sensitive to that sort of stuff and you yeah. know that people have suffered there. It's going to have a creepy, unsettling vibe to it. It's like Gettysburg. Like, I wouldn't walk in Gettysburg at nighttime. Places like the battlefield anyway. Oh, I 100% would. I mean, we've driven through it, but I'm <laughs> 
I'm not getting out of the car. We used to camp in Gettysburg and we would go walk around at night. No, thank you. I went to like ghost hunt on around a battlefield in Virginia. I cannot for the life of me remember where it was, but a guy I used to work with um, also moonlighted as a medium. So yeah, we kind of went on a little adventure. It was right around Halloween too. So I love that shit. (laughs) Yeah. I want to do a ghost tour of Gettysburg. Let's do it. I did the ghost tour. It was really, I was a lot younger. It was a lot of fun. But my old ass isn't doing it. <laughs> well, before we derail too much more onto other haunted places in PA, um, that's our a, a wrap on our episode for uh, John Chocha Jr. and the Harrisburg State Hospital. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins, production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.